0: Welcome to Constructed Futures with Hugh Seaton. Today I've got Ciara Peter, VP of Product and Design at Gainsight. Ciara, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, so Ciara, when we were talking earlier, we, we got into how the construction industry, specifically some of the software, doesn't always take into account users, especially users in the field and some of how they design and, and some of how the kind of UX works we kind of, you kind of brought up this idea of designing for humans. Want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So in no way am I a psychologist or anything like that, but in my years of kind of working on product design, I'll tell my evolution has been, you know, learning about user interface and you kind of design a screen here and there. um, And you think, great, this looks really cool. Um, you know, over time, you start to think about things like um, what does the user know and it's really hard to tell what they actually know about your product, know about the industry, etc. Personas are very important, and there are some assumptions that you can make, but I've learned that assumptions are dangerous and um over educating is much better than kind of assuming, um, but it's mm-hmm. also about how people feel. So, um, as a <laughs> as a human, so imagine that I'm at mm-hmm. work, right? Like we're pro- we're probably talking about the context of building products for work. Um, at work, I want to be successful. I want the people who are paying me, whether that's a client or my boss to know that i'm successful i want to focus on my job and not software um i think that as creators and as entrepreneurs something that we may fall into the trap of is like we think about if, if you're building software you think about your company and your product 20 you know 24 hours a day yeah, yeah. times right. and uh, the user typically they don't care about they don't care about your brand like they care about their work and completing the task and moving on with their life you know so those are a couple of principles that I like to think about in designing for humans
0: yeah sort of get it get in get it done and and get back to your you know go home I think is what you want yeah yeah yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about assumptions. One of the things about the construction and the kind of built environment overall is you often have people that have been at it for a while and they they know their corner of the industry pretty well. Do you find sometimes that people that have depth in a a job or in an industry bring assumptions that make them a little bit susceptible to not asking broader questions?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. So... Let's think about this. Um, so really assumptions can be, I mean, I can think of some parallels in my industry. So, um, Mm -hmm. I currently build customer success software and we have people, we have a lot of users that have been in the industry in their role for 10 years. They've used our product for a long time. Um, or they've used customer success products for a long time. And they're kind of experts. They know the jargon. They know the terminology. But we have people who are coming to our product for the first time. We have people who come into their role for the first time. So they're not there for, let's say, an onboarding. So somebody gets transferred into this role. And you know, it may be different for construction, but I'm sure there are people who are, you know, maybe they're like, doing an apprenticeship, they're early in their career, and they're still learning some things. And so in in our world, we have to be really careful with things like jargon. Um, Of course, there are going to be some terms that are just industry standard, technical terms, etc. But um, think about things that might be internal jargon within your company that you just assume everybody knows. Um, I like to write for an eighth grade level. I don't care if it's right. PhD scientists using the product. It has nothing to do with education. It has to do with um, the ability to learn. What if somebody what if your users are learning English for the first time and you have an English only product? You know, maybe the advanced nuances of conversation, humor, things like that are not going to translate well. And therefore that person doesn't understand how to use the product. They don't feel smart when they use their product and they are less likely to come back. Uh, One other thing on this topic is error messaging. Um, And I'm sort of moving from the, moving a little bit from assumptions to just kind of more broadly talking about how to, how to talk to people within your experience. Uh-huh. Error messaging is another thing that I think is overlooked a lot. Uh, it's either like code. <laughs> so an, yeah. an, an engineer like writes, you know, they're building it and they write their own notes and those notes actually get delivered because nobody yeah. tests the error messaging or yeah. You make the mistake of making the user feel like they made a mistake, so uh, you are you, you are not allowed to input more than two hundred characters. That doesn't seem bad, but it's much better to 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 not say you did this. It's much better to say right. like there's a maximum of two hundred characters please please try try again right, yeah.
0: Um, I like I like this idea of of the eighth grade level because you're not just talking about how how much someone does or doesn't know or it's they're also not interested in in, in focusing very hard because your software is there to do something for them not not teach them how to use it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I mean, I, I you know it's funny in, in construction we have almost uh, you know a, a, a different end of the problem where you have people that have been at it a long time but haven't necessarily grown up with software. So in their case, the jargon they don't want to hear about is software jargon.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe on maybe something, before we get into the next question, I just had a thought on that, which is, um, which is the first time experience, like, we, uh, I definitely have gotten into a scenario where I thought that I might offend people by explaining too much. But uh, the best thing I think anyone can do, especially depending on the frequency of use of your product, but uh, sometimes people might not come back, they might use it, and then they might come back way later, and then they forget. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's always good to have some kind of thing to do. You don't want to make it up. I mean, you don't want to make it pointless and over gamify. But There's got to be some kind of task or reminder of something that somebody can accomplish when they come into your product. And along with that, I think in the very first time somebody uses it, we often neglect to say, why are you here and what are you going to get out of this? Um, in cases where somebody else buys that product, and where a different person buys it than the person who uses it, they may have gotten some notification or email like "we use this app now, try it." Yeah, they don't know what's in it for them, and they may perceive that it's easier to just do things, you know, with a pen and paper or whatever way they've been doing it for for a long time. So we still have to, we still have to do a little bit of selling to. The user, I think, um, to get them on board as well.
0: I love that. So there's kind of two ideas in what you just said. One of them is make sure somebody gets is able to do something early, so they feel some sort of sense of competence, which is, I think, amazing. Uh, I use, I mean, again, I spend a lot of time in virtual reality, and that's one of the tricks you use in VR to make someone feel like they're they're there. Um, but the second the second part is this, you know. I don't know selling or making them feel comfortable or making them at least feel like y- you understand what they're going to use it for. Like, what are they there for? I guess really, really kind of interesting. Um, not something that 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 you hear enough about in software. I think is this idea of, of of every person, every person has to be onboarded. Um, go ahead.
1: Yeah, exactly. When we go for, uh, we. We've gone through this shift, right? And I'll talk about it from the SaaS industry, but I think that in the construction industry is probably, probably experiencing some of this, but maybe at a different stage. But in the uh-huh. enterprise software industry, it was 15 years ago, it was like you sell some software and then you install it or you have a disk or something and then it's there and you do a one-time deal and then ten years ago, we've gone into this cloud-based kind of world where um, you do the annual deal, and that still that still is very relevant. It still applies, but something that I've seen emerge in the last five years is the the admins and the people who are responsible for the success of this um, of your implementation or whatever they bought. They require Often to see usage dashboards, like they need to be able to validate. They need to be able to validate validate the ROI, and really the proxy for value. I mean, unless uh, in some cases, I'm sure for financial products, you can really validate the the monetization. But in most cases, the value comes from usage or a certain action that's taken. So, from that perspective, that is that is a really tangible reason why. Uh, I would love to say that I'm just altruistic and humans are <laughs> humans yeah. are important, and you know I want everybody to use the product because they love it. But um, you know we're we are talking about business, and and uh, business depends on it.
0: But yeah, the usage dashboard is really really interesting. Um, and I think you're right. You're, you're, you're seeing that, that more and more. I mean, the, the construction industry has gone through, uh, depending on the company, a, a bit of a period of, of experimentation and then kind of settling in on, on, you know, we need to show that this is, this is working. So I, I want to jump back to something we, you, we were talking about a little bit before and, um, and thinking about customer discovery. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the power and, and, and even the limits of, of customer discovery?
1: Yeah. Um, the first, well, the power of course, is that there is never ending. there there is a never ending list of ideas. So uh, I don't think anyone, I don't think any company that I've ever worked at or anyone has ever had a shortage of ideas. I mean, it's great to be the idea person, right? And of course there are people who are genius founders that just, are thinking light years ahead but um, you know with customer discovery I think it, the, the power is that you can very easily generate that backlog the challenge is that you do too much so <laughs> I think when you're trying to get something to market uh, it it's easy to fall into the trap of saying okay well we have to have A, B, C, D, and E in order to be successful. Uh, our, maybe there's a competitor that has all of these features. But I think it's more important to get you know, A and maybe B really right and do them uniquely in order to enter the market. And this goes into the jobs to be done idea versus yeah. uh, features to be built. And so... You know, the concept of jobs to be done is like somebody is paying you to do a job. Your your application is a job. So um, you can do that job. You can do that job in one great feature. You can do it in five features. Um, but I think staying, minim- staying minimalist is uh, one of the harder things to do. I'll mention a good example of something I think that captured the job to be done uh, I just totally uh, I totally caught myself saying capture the <laughs> app is box capture so um, I used to work at box and uh, box is known as like a file uh, file storage and sharing service but there was an idea that came from actually the construction industry which was, they were taking pictures and then they would go back to the office and then they would upload them one by one. And it was this really tedious process. You know, they had to go to these different sites or I think it was a fire hydrant is one of the examples. And each fire hydrant had some different like number. They had to track a status. And they said, like, we can't do that when we're out in the field. We're wearing gloves. Um, It's really hard to to press all these little buttons. And so the idea behind Box Capture is there's one – you open the app, it's ready. There's one button. If you want to take a photo, you press the button. I think if you want to take a video, you long press the button. And they automatically get uploaded to the cloud and then – you can do whatever you want with them. So there's some AI that was being developed that, um, like for drivers' licenses. This is sort of not a construction example, but I think it was a rideshare company, and they had to they had to uh, get all the licenses of the drivers, and so they could um, use something like this, have the photos uploaded and transcribe it. And you know, a similar thing can be done where there's a little bit of machine learning. Um, and depending on the the task that needs to be completed, that can all be kind of like, that can all be sort of managed on the back end. But um, that that app was a huge success with a fairly small audience. But um, it was simple. It's like the simplest simplest app that I've ever yeah. thought. Yeah, and the it really you work.
0: press a little or press a lot, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. So um, so so that was great. Can you talk? Can can you talk a little bit about what
0: the process of 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 discovering that was? How did how did you guys come across the insight that that was that's what the, you know where the issues were and what was interesting?
1: Yeah, um, well, certain there are a couple ways to do it. I think one is like if you have people who are out in the field, um, mm-hmm. like I think we were probably looking at the construction vertical. And with that, you know, you can have conversations and what are you, you know, what, like, what are the, what are the features and functionality you think you need? Often you're not talking to the end user. So that gives some insight, but really the best insight is when you follow somebody around, you watch them use your app, especially with mobile. This is so important. And so I think we, I think we, you know, convinced a a customer to let us follow somebody for like a day in the field. And we were, you know, we noticed, okay, they're not using, they have, they have complicated uh, machinery and gloves and um, like workwear that they have to deal with. Um, They, you know, they have like, at the end of the day, there's some, tasks that need to be completed. And they're normally going home to do this. And actually at Salesforce, um, I worked on their first iPad app and it was like before the iPad came out. So we had to figure out not only like, what is an iPad? What is the interface yeah. look like? But we also That's had to figure out, I mean, it was like, nobody knew there was a problem. So we, as a company looked at We're like, okay, we have to get ahead of this iPad thing, Um, which isn't necessarily something that I recommend for all companies saying like, oh, there's some new device. Let's figure out what to do. I mean, typically it's best to start with a problem, but we knew like we were always, we always wanted to get ahead of everything. And that's how Salesforce has become the most incredibly successful like enterprise software company in the world, I think. But anyway, at that time we said, okay, well, this is a mobile device. And we want to. Most of our audience is salespeople. Let's let's see what they do. We got to follow them around. And so we shadowed a couple of of uh, field account executives. And we what we found was they had these folders that they would bring. They have like briefcases and folders and all these papers they'd bring to all their meetings. They would. um they had like several devices. They had a phone that they used for calls. They had some other mobile device they used for, uh, you know. They had like a BlackBerry for different inputs and sort of compliance. And then they had these notepads, and uh, and then at the end of the day, they had to go back to the office, and then they had to type everything in. And so that gave us great insight, which is one okay. They need to see their files, because now they're carrying around all these files uh, uh, in folders and in paper, and they don't want to do that. We had to integrate with contract software. So I think we integrated with a partner of ours that made it really easy to get those contracts signed, again, eliminating the need for um, the paper relics. And then the most important thing was like just the ability to track everything track the activities so we said okay what are what are most of the things that they do when they go back to the office because that's so annoying they're in their car and then they have to yeah. either go back to the office or go home because a lot of them had home offices and then they had to bring work home which like wasn't really you know wasn't really a thing that anyone it's not really a thing that anyone wants to do after a long day on the road and so what we started with, I mean, Salesforce has like 50 objects. Well, we didn't build all 50 of those objects. We said, okay, they want to deal with accounts, contacts, and opportunities, and maybe something else. So that was our MVP, and um, you know, it was it was pretty successful. It was interesting because at that time, companies were deciding, do I do something that is web based? with a web-based mobile app with wrapper, or do we do native? And so we ended up eventually, the company ended up eventually building what is now um, like Salesforce. One was what they would deliver. I'm sure it's called something else. Um, But anyway, that evolved over time, but it was great. I mean, that was the best way to learn those use cases, follow someone around. And I think we often fear like, well, why why would they want to do that? What would be their incentive to do that? Do we have to pay them? And the answer is no. I mean, typically, ask 10 people that are going to be using your product. They'll give you an hour of their time. Maybe they'll even give you a day. I mean, a day is a stretch. I still feel kind of uncomfortable with that unless the company is like a, you know, if they have a huge contract with you, of course, they're invested in it. But typically, people are like, yeah, you want my opinion? Totally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and if they're using their your product, they probably have some kind of frustration. There's something that's bothering them about it, and so uh, it's really it's it's really not a thing. I mean, you ask ten people, you'll probably get three, four, five of them to let you, you know, to give you that time.
0: Yeah, and and so that's you know that that was once called ethnographies. I think it's it's yeah know, probably still called that in some places. Um, where you, you exactly the only way to know back to this idea of jobs to be done. The only way you know the job to be done and, and how they really do it is by watching, because people aren't always great at describing that. Um, really, really interesting. Um, I, I, we talked at one point, and I, I want to tie some of the ideas we've talked about so far around this this framework that you you, you mentioned uh, uh, in a in an earlier conversation of you know Dan Pink's framework of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I, I think you know some of what we talked about in terms of you know, making it easy for someone to get in. So that, that's that sense of, 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 uh, of, of uh, autonomy, um, you know, making it so that it's written in a way that they, um, people can just quickly understand and, and, and feel some sense of mastery. And then, you know, purpose is tying it back to why, why they're there. How have you kind of, a? a and I'm, this is take this question wherever you want, but how have you applied that sort of thing in, in some projects you've done in the past? Like, how does one think like that when they're, when they're really making a product?
1: Yeah so um i I like using this framework to think about building products because it really goes back to and for anyone who hasn't um read drive uh paraphrasing but the basic concept is people have to make a certain amount of money to be motivated to do a job, but then beyond that, uh, there are many intrinsic factors that that need to be present that are more important than like that incremental raise uh etc. And so, you know, one of those is autonomy, like people need to be able to people need to be able to decide when and how they work. And so, one great part about autonomy is um you know, edu- like educating them within the app at at their own pace. They can decide whether they want to do a guided tour or whether they want to just go ahead and jump in. Um, but really like being self-guided. Uh, and then if you have the ability for customization, I think uh, that can also help with autonomy and sort of helping people to work, the enable them to work the way that they work. But customization is a whole other mm-hmm. uh, can of worms. And then mastery is about helping people to to accomplish things and to level up and to get better. So, um, in the context of software, you know, maybe the first time that they use your product, they have a fairly simple experience, but then there are ways that they can, maybe they want to see more advanced settings or something like that. Then they have the option to do that, but it's not kind of putting that in everyone's face because, um, if everybody sees the advanced experience they're you know they might they might feel really demotivated um but right right and i think we have to be careful with with things like gamification but if somebody accomplishes something real that's related to their work um let them know for mm-hmm. example um at gainsight we have a feature called call to action and it's kind of like tasks. And if, when somebody finishes their inbox of tasks, they get a, they get a message congratulating them. Everybody feels good about finishing their tasks. And it's little things like this that you can think, Oh, it's not really a big deal, but like you want people to, you want people to, every time they come in, they feel like, okay, this, this really did provide me value. It made me feel good. Um, like, and I guess there are really two sides of... There's kind of two sides of the the jobs to be done. Back to that. One side is, did I accomplish the functional task? And the other side is, did the job give me the emotional satisfaction that I care yeah. about? And so kind of like closing out this, um, this uh, drive framework, it, purpose. So um, I will... Uh, forgive my, forgive my lack of knowledge or my, my, my much lack of knowledge in the construction industry, but you know, you're construct, if people are constructing something, they, they build it. And like, yeah, it's it, some of these projects I know can be really tedious. So sure. There are, you know, maybe you accomplish some small part, some part of the, st- some, some structural framework, some room, some building, etc. Um, but in the end you want them to know that that they've accomplished something. So let's say you're collaborating as a team, you have a bunch of people in different functions that are doing different parts of the project. Well, what it, wouldn't it be great to see like when everybody has sort of completed their part of this one section of the journey? I mean, that is like that is that is purpose or the project gets finally completed, letting you know um, giving you credit for that maybe um, maybe your boss sees it maybe there's a way to um, capture the moment but like it, the bigger the project I think the more this um, this 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 resonates in the world of customer success purpose is really about um, you know people join the customer success profession because they want to um, they want to help. They ultimately want to help people. I mean, yeah, they want to get renewals and manage accounts, but they want to help. So like if the account, um, if the account renews, that means that they did their job and that's like their sense of purpose. And so we try to reward that.
0: I think that's a great one. And construction is one of those industries where you, you know, unlike a lot of others, where you can point to something after it and say, I I built that. Yeah. uh, Which is, I, I think really great. So I I'd love to kind of um close out a little bit with some thoughts on on how uh the two the two halves of of the sort of construction software uh market might think about this. On the one hand, you've got companies in construction that are getting increasingly good at at onboarding and and kind of trend and you know using software as a as a digital transformation tool. How how would you see and the second piece of course is the is the startups who are who are starting who are creating Um, Products for them. Um, If you were to talk to an innovation team at a at a at a um, construction company, you know who's who's thinking about software and thinking about assessing software. Some of what you've you've said is a little bit from the builder, you know, the builder of software side. But the other side of it might be, you know, thinking about what people should expect, like what they should demand from the people that are offering them software. How do you think about? you know kind of this the state of the art and what people cuz you know the other side of this is for all the fact we're talking about software in a in a in a, a construction context everybody's phone has got a bunch of consumer applications on it as well so how do you think about the state of the art in terms of what people are 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 expecting and what they should what they should expect from software
1: yeah um, well So there's this concept of like the RFP, you know, they come up with a list of features that they need. And I think that's important uh, because usually you do need those features. But yeah, maybe something that that is kind of emerging is like they should have some users test it and see if people are actually going to use it. Because I have seen some software that um, I've seen some software that has all of the bells and whistles and just doesn't work. And um, that actually, it actually uh, reminds me of kind of my experience at at Gainsight. So Gainsight is about seven or eight years old now. Um, Very engineering engineering driven culture. We had about two designers a couple of years ago. We now have 13. And part of that is um, we have the most robust product in the market, but we were seeing that um we were seeing that people were saying hey like it, it, it's it's hard to learn and we want to make this we really wish this was more simple we're going to go with your lower this lower end competitor that maybe has like a tenth of the features uh because it's easier to understand and and thinking where where is that customer now right like you have to meet the cus- you have to meet the customer and the user where they are so just saying that you have the most stuff it's like I think there's a comparison between the Ferrari and like, I don't know, maybe a Prius or something, but some, something more functional, like people, not everybody, yeah. needs the Ferrari. So, um, so I think like that could be a pretty interesting thing is just understanding, you know, what, what people want. But anyway, as a company, we sort of said like, we need to fix this now and we may simplify one of our top initiatives, I actually started at gainsight in a product management role. Uh, but as a company, we decided that simplification of the experience is, is the number one priority for 2020. and so I actually wasn't planning on moving back to a purely product design. I hadn't done purely product design in like seven years, but it was it was so important to what we needed as a company that um, I actually changed my role to focus a hundred percent of the time on experience and that's now paying off, but it, but it definitely is, um, is a lot of hard work. So yeah, it's a little, little anecdote, but I think, yeah, ex- it, user experience is not, I, I don't do user experience because I ca- because I care about how pretty something is or I geek out over pixels. Like I really don't care. Yeah. User experience yeah. is what <laughs> user experience is incredibly important for making money. And, uh, I think, you know, I think we're, we're seeing that. I think we're seeing that in all industries.
0: Yeah. And I think that that actually really well answers the other half of the question, which is what, what, you know, if you had advice for, for companies that are building for this market, what might be a good thing to focus on? And it sounds like, you know, design not letting design get, you know, uh, ignored until too late and making UX a part of a part of the process early um, as opposed to what you know later on once the thing's been in the field a little bit
1: yeah uh, let, ha- me share, ha- let me share one more yeah. framework with you related to that um, this is something that I used so when I went to a company that had several products that were at different stages of maturity. It helped us to understand where we were and what we needed to focus on. And it's, I love pyramids. I just, it's such a simple thing. um, But like, it's kind of this hierarchy of needs and Mm -hmm. you got to start from the bottom and assess. So at the bottom of this hierarchy of needs is like, does the product work? Um, Does it crash? Does it break? A lot of times You'll be so focused on building new features that the product, you don't even care or notice that it crashes for 25% of the users or um, it's really slow. It takes 20 seconds to load a page. It's totally unacceptable and you'll never get to the next level. The next level in the pyramid is like, can they log in? You'd be amazed at some of the stats I've seen. Um, in failures to log in, maybe there's some complicated SSO process or um, and it's just not like an experience that is always, there's not usually a login team, right? Um, but That's when you enough as a product, you have several different logins, maybe you have some companies you acquired and eventually that has to come together. And so I've seen, I, I, I've seen that be like a real deterrent to engagement. The third step is a metric that I love, which is day seven retention or D seven retention. Depending on the frequency of use, like if you want to be a daily or weekly use product and you think that's the right frequency day day seven is great. If it's more of a month, I don't know, weekly or monthly, maybe day 14 or 30. But anyway, what this metric does is let you know, okay, somebody came in for the first time and then did they come back within seven days or 14 days? If they did, that means that they like understand what they're there for. They know what the value is and they, they, they got some value out of it in the first day. If not, like should probably stop there and make sure that they are even going to come back. And uh, the next, the, the, second to top step on the pyramid is like weekly active usage. So are they building habits? And you know, at the top is like daily active usage. Are they, are they willing to promote your product? But the point of all this is if you don't have a step below, like if you don't have steps one and two down, there's no point in trying to get people to become a daily user. Like they're never going to become a daily user if they can't log in. So just a, a kind of framework that i like to use to assess um, where to focus for some certain period of time and it's great if you're doing planning you can say okay well this quarter we really got to focus on we really have to fix the login or we really have to get that first time experience down so people know what to do
0: i i love this and it, it sort of it, it does bring us home to this idea of of um you know to, to, uh, build software for humans right is Obviously, in the beginning, it could be anybody. If you can't, if if it crashes, it doesn't matter if you're a monkey or a a human. But as you get up, up your kind of levels of of, of the framework, it really starts to see, is this how people really want to use software? Because they're using it more and more. Um, Really, really insightful. Well, CR, this has been great. I, I appreciate your kind of walk through a number of frameworks and experience on how people should be thinking about making software useful for for real people um, thank you for your time
1: Thank you so much you